Hi. Hey, how are you? Oh, good. Thanks for calling. Yeah, I'll read your bio. I just grabbed it off your site, I think. Okay, I'll just put a title on it. Maybe I'll end up putting this on my blog, too. This is Rudy Rucker on June 26, 2015, and I'm being interviewed by Doug Lane for his podcast, which used to be called Diet Soap, but now it's called, what is it called now? It's called Zero Squared, and it's associated with Zero Book. Right, Zero Squared. Okay, so um, are you recording my side of the conversation as well as yours? Well, yeah, I have my phone on speakerphone, but it's probably going to suck. Yeah, right. All right, so um, Rudy Rucker is a writer and a mathematician who worked for 20 years as a Silicon Valley computer science professor and published a number of software packages. Uh, a founder of the Cyberpunk School of Science Fiction, Rucker also writes uh, science fiction in a realistic style known as transrealism. His 2006 book, Mathematicians in Love, was an example of a trans real novel, and his early cyberpunk four-book series recently republished uh, back in 2010 as the Where Trilogy. Um, Tetralogy. Welcome to Zero Squared. Thanks, Doug. Uh, the fact that you do a podcast has been sort of an inspiration for me that I always wanted to get one together myself, so it's nice. Well, yeah, I, I was listening to your podcast, and uh thought it was quite interesting. I've actually subscribed to the Ruby Record podcast, and you recently published a book um, just called Journals, right? Uh, right, Journals, 1990 to 2014. It spans 25 years. And is this your most recent book? Yes, it is. Uh, it's something, it came to, to exist because I've been keeping electronic journals ever since 1990. That was, you know, sort of when I got ramped up into the the computer thing. And uh, so I thought it would... I'd always had in the back of my mind that I would make a book out of these journals. I've always... When I was young, I liked Camus' journals, and then I liked Kafka's journals, and I, I liked Andy Warhol's journals. And I thought it would be nice to have a book of my journals. And I also thought... Since I have some time, I might as well do it myself as opposed to letting someone else do it. So I, uh, it was a lot of words. It was more like 600,000 words. And, uh, and usually a novel is like 100,000, so it was quite long. So then uh, I went over it over the last, really, about three years. I, I went over it about four times. And then I'd get tired of it, and then I'd come back and go over it. And then I enlisted a couple of guys to proofread it. And then uh, I cut it down to 400,000 words, and uh, then I published it myself as a paperback, hardback, and ebook. So that right now is 400,000 words? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, well, you've been self publishing for a little while now. Uh, when did you start uh, self publishing your books? I think it was, uh, it was around 2000. 14 or 2013 it was when touring and burroughs came out i had i was my main publisher was tour books and they for i did about i don't know maybe eight books in a row with them and i had a good relationship with them but then there's this death spiral thing where the sales were going down and they were getting less interested in doing it and maybe well not that they ever promoted them you as a tour author know what that's like uh yeah but then, uh, and David Hartwell, the ed my editor there, was always very supportive, but, you know, it's not entirely his decision, of course. And then uh, I did a novel, Jim and the Flims, and they didn't want to do that, so I took that over to uh, Nightshade. And then Hartwell did pick up one more of my books. Uh, it was my autobiography, Nested Scrolls. And there was some hope that that might make it over to the mainstream, because it's you know, a fairly interesting book about a writer's life. and uh, But it didn't catch on. And then at that point, Tor said, well, we, we just can't publish your books anymore. And right. and I had thought I'd found a new home at Nightshade, but then they, they more or less went bankrupt, or they got bought out by somebody else. And uh, so then I thought, well, screw it. I, I think I can figure out how to publish myself uh, 
it's not that hard. I mean, it's hard in the sense that I'm a computer. I was a computer science professor, and it took me seven months to learn how to do it. So, <laughs> yeah, right. It's non-trivial, but uh, I did figure it out, and then so now I'm selling the paperbacks via Amazon, and uh, making my own eBooks too. And that's uh, the the downside is that I don't get much promo that way. But again, I wasn't getting much promo. Anyway, I guess the big thing is that you don't really get onto the shelves of bookstores. And in principle, they can order them, but they won't do it. And uh, so that's, that's kind of, and you don't get reviewed, uh, really. Maybe Locust will review them, and maybe a few scattered people review them. Uh, the other downside is you don't get a book advance, but the strategy that I figured out for that is I now I do a Kickstarter for each of my books, and uh, that way I'm able to raise maybe five thousand or six thousand or seven thousand dollars, and that's pretty much what I was getting as my advances towards the end of tour. So that's okay, and the sales are less, but of course I get a lot more per per unit than I would if it was being filtered through a publisher. shop with you because you know I've worked with Tor and I've worked with Nightshade Books both. Yes. And in fact, uh, I have a novel coming out in August uh, from Nightshade Books, um, and they're still going. It's still a going concern. The Skyhorse is uh, the new company that. Right, they're an imprint of Skyhorse. Yeah, and that's probably not so bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, would you if they were interested? To, maybe I won't leave this in the podcast, but if they were interested in picking up one of your next books and would pay you a $5,000 advance, would you want to go with Nightshade through Skyhorse, or have you decided that overall you like self-publishing better? Well, I don't think I would go with Nightshade Skyhorse. Uh, the, uh, they're so small, they, they, they don't really, I don't know, they don't have much of a presence. And I had a lot of trouble getting paid for my uh, Nightshade book. It, it took a long wow. time. And of course, they were in dire straits down, probably with Skyhorse running the shop. It wouldn't be so hard now. There's also a question: Would Skyhorse buy a book from me? And my books, there are. I mean, aficionados of my work say, you know, I'm, I'm at the top of my form, and they're, you know, they're even better than they ever were. But for uh, like a commercial bread and butter science fiction publisher, they're they're not really looking for literary highbrow, esoteric countercultural, bizarre novels, and this is what I tend to write, and you yourself do that to some extent, so. Yeah, I do, and I'm feeling a little nervous hearing you say this, because, you know, I've got a book coming out in August, and uh, it's definitely, I don't know how highbrow, I guess it's fairly highbrow, I'm not sure if that makes it smart, but, uh, it, uh, yeah, so I'm feeling, you know, like, this, this self-publishing thing may be in my future, too, because, um, I figured I had a shot with Tor. I had one book. Yes. Didn't get a second shot. Right. And now they put a book out from Nightshade, a novel. Yeah. And and I'm putting together some anthologies too, but uh, I may not get a second shot with Nightshade if they if they can. Although I don't know. My feeling is with Skyhorse that Skyhorse is relatively large. I mean, not like Macmillan or something, but that they put out a lot of different kinds of books. Um, and they're successful because they're buying up all these other companies. They must be somewhat successful. Right. But but I haven't seen, I mean, I'm not even sure it's going to be reviewed in Publishers Weekly. You know, yeah. Uh, well, also something with publishers, I look at their list of the books they have, and if I don't see any books that are really very much like my book, then I'm, I'm not too optimistic. There's also a matter of... Uh, you have to wait, you know, maybe six months, maybe eight months before you hear back from them. And there's this going around hat in hand thing, which I'm just tired of at my age. You know, it's like, fuck that. And then, right. uh, I mean, I'm just begging them for like a, a fucking scrap off their table. And I can get the same money with Kickstarter. And so, you know, I mean, it, it, I'm writing, writing a novel now and I probably will offer it to tour. And because uh, if, you know, I'd get less money in the end that way, but, you know, who knows? There's always, it's a bit of a lottery with a publisher. There is more of the possibility of it catching on, you know, because they're putting it out there. So uh, 
this novel I'm working on now is called Million Mile Road Trip. And it, it has to do with something that's always... I like taking road trips with my wife, and then there's always, like, the Wild West isn't big enough, you know. We've, we've driven Monument Valley, you know, and we did Nevada, and wouldn't it be great if you could just go and, you know, you, you get California, and that's great, and then you hit the ocean. Wouldn't it be great if you could just keep on driving, you know? And that's sort of a fantasy I've had my whole life. And people have touched on this. I mean, uh, there, there are books with, with endless worlds where people drive around. Uh, J Terry Pratchett had a world a little bit like that. And then uh, Charlie Strauss had a world a little bit like that. But, uh, you know, they each did it in their own style, and I'd be doing it in my, my own way. And I'm thinking of trying to make it be a young adult book. And my characters are, well, there's two, the main two just graduated from high school, and the younger brother of one of them is along, too. He's 13. But then uh, it's a whole thing with the genre. You think about YA, I mean, that wasn't really even a word people used, of course, 15 years ago. There were just some books that had young people in them, and then sometimes, you know, they would be popular with young people. And, uh, mm -hmm. and then, I mean, if you totally get into the strictures of, uh, you know, true blue YA, which is, you know, not something I would do, of course, but, uh, you know, you're in high school, you're talking about your first period, uh, you're, you know. Yeah, I mean, Judy Bloom was a young adult novelist. Yes. And a good one. Yeah, it's uh, possible, yeah. I mean, and you could say Catcher in the Rye is young adult, you could say Huck Finn is young adult. Yeah, but, but that's not, though. Those weren't. Judy Bloom really did write aiming at a teenage audience. I mean, yes, yeah. You know, those those it, books were marketed as young adult books, and I think we've been mark they've been marketing young adult books the teen readers since at least the 70s. Uh, you know, I think yeah, it goes back that far. I guess you're right. Well, that's, yeah, that's not a type of book that I want to write. Yeah. But uh, I, I had this thing, I just have to tell you because I think it's amusing. I have a, one of the characters is a flying saucer and I've been like in turmoil, you know, sort of grappling with myself. Should I let my my thirteen year old have sex with a flying saucer? I mean, once I thought of that, it just seemed like such a great idea. The flying saucer has this tiny little aperture on her lower undersurface. She's sort of floppy and rubbery, you know. Wow. <laughs> and I was I was wrestling with the devil, you know. I said, you can't do that, Rudy. And then I thought, you know, the book has to be fun for me. It has to be fun for me. It has to make me laugh. So now he did it with her and. The scene I'm working on right now, they're in this car and they're going to drive a hundred, you know, a million miles and the saucer's plastered herself to the ceiling of the car and then she, she comes back and sits on his lap and, and this guy, this 13-year-old Scud, he looks up at the ceiling and there's this clutch of eggs that are attached to the ceiling. <laughs> so it's going to be fun when the eggs hatch. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, okay, well, I was... What I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, the fact that you're writing, I mean, it's not really, I guess, a young adult novel in the style of Judy Bloom. No. But, um, but uh, what do you think about the trajectory um, genre fiction and just fiction has taken over the last 20 years or so? I mean, when you were writing uh, and getting started in sort of forming cyberpunk, it seemed to me that, at least looking back, maybe I'm looking back through rose-colored lenses, but it seems like there was a lot more um, of a market, a lot more people interested in complicated, forward-looking, um, sometimes experimental fiction. And, you know, the new wave had happened, and now uh, there was cyberpunk. Where, where do you think, is that, is, am I looking back at it through rose-colored glasses? or have Well, to some extent, you are looking through rose-colored glasses because the whole point of cyberpunk was a rebellion for the fact that the market was just full of bloated crap, you know, and the way it pretty much is now. It was, you know, it, it, that never changes, you know. People like these big fat series, you know, and they like fantasy. There's more fantasy than there used to be, but they like these epics, and they like having heroes who are in the Space Navy, and they're aristocrats, and it's just, you know, corny crap. And uh, so there's always, that's always the lion's share of the market. And uh, 
the the people who read science fiction, well, if you go to cons, I don't know if you've ever gone to an SF con, uh, it's, it's sort of a sobering experience because you'll find that a lot of the people there aren't really people that you can imagine yourself writing for, though. Now and then some of them have, in fact, read your books. But um, something, one thing that's happened over the years is that there's been more fantasy. It's been sort of eating our lunch. And then the other thing that's just I've noticed in the last five to ten years is uh, mainstream is eating our lunch. I mean, like the New Yorker this today. I mean, our, no, last week's New Yorker. Like there's a story in there called, I think it's called Grow Light People. And it's a science fiction story, you know. And... Uh, the front page of the New York Times Sunday book section, really, I would say one, week's out of, one week out of two, well, maybe I'm exaggerating, but one out of every two novels, it seems like, is basically a science fiction novel. But they don't call it science fiction uh, because, uh, I don't know, well, science fiction, it's, it's just saying this is, more, this is for morons, you know. So, mm-hmm. and, uh, but they call it speculative or futuristic or visionary and it's it's become a way to write about the present because the present everybody has the sense that you know it's slipping away from us William Gibson of course he's he's so great at turning these bon bon mots these these phrases and he says well science fiction is his way of getting a little distance on the present you know just backing off just a little bit and a way of trying to come to terms with it and that's sort of what I'm doing with transrealism, also a way of just amp- dialing up the weirdness of the present to 11, and then we're sort of able to notice more what we're actually doing. We, there's things we do that we're, we're just like we're asleep. It's like we're sleepwalking. I mean, everybody you see is carrying a cell phone and looking at it, you know? And if you had done a jump cut from 19... I don't know, even from like from 2005 to now, it would it would like really freak you out to see that. But now it's everybody's doing it. You know, it's always been this way. It's not surprising, and that's where if you do science fiction and you you do another jump cut, you know, where like maybe everybody's wearing you know wearing Google Glass shades, you can't see their faces, something like that. It sort of snaps you out of your your sort of uh, trance, and and you'll notice things. So, so that's, I mean, as a true blue science fiction writer, I have a lot of resentment and bitterness towards, <laughs> like every writer, we're always resentful and bitter, that, uh, that the, uh, you know, these newcomers are getting, you know, they're getting patted on the head, you know, the, the, the big critics, the mandarins, you know, they're, they're totally accepting them, but, you know, I'm like the old style, you know, the, the bad the bad person who writes science fiction, and they're not going to even look at what I write, you know. Yeah. Well, did, are these books from the, coming out from the mainstream um, commercially viable books? Uh, who knows? It's, it's, I mean, publishers, it's the thing like that that'll happen. They'll give somebody one shot. You know, it's like they're buying. Nobody knows. It's just even editors have told me this. They just never really know. It's just so chaotic. It's just so chaotic in the mathematical, physical sense that it's really impossible. It's absolutely no way to predict what's going to catch on. And then, but they publish these books, and that's what people want to write these days. And people like reading them. And you know, some of them do catch on. I mean, I think Jennifer Egan, her books have a a, a science fictional quality, and uh, that guy Steingart. Uh, super sad love story. That's a science fiction book, and uh, so they and Updike wrote one or two, and uh, yeah. so it's well, Updike. He, he was commercially viable. Yeah, so they're. I mean, they can be commercially viable. So, uh, and the thing is, if you stay in the SF bin, uh, maybe you're guaranteed of selling two thousand copies, and if you go out. In the mainstream, I think it's entirely possible that you might sell, you know, 200. I mean, people really take a bath there sometimes. But you, you seem to me actually like somebody who would have a chance of, of getting out of the SF category and being marketed as mainstream. I mean, you, you have that 
literary quality. I mean, is that something that you've thought about, how to do that? Yeah, I definitely want to do that, but I don't, I don't know how to do that because all my contacts, everything I know is in the field, right? I mean, uh, I guess, it, well, or the left. Those are my two uh, options. But, uh, but we should be more, I'm, I should be more uh, disciplined here and not let you get me into a conversation about my career. And I want to talk to you, uh, maybe we can bring that up at the end, but I want to bring up something you just said about in distance from the present. Yes. And bringing it back finally to your act, to your book here. Yes, the journals. Um, yeah, your, your journals. Um, 1990 to 2014. <laughs> yeah, what a, what, a, what a great... First of all, it's, being 44, looking back at 1990, it's shocking to me that it's been 24 years. I can't, I can't quite believe it, and yet uh, what seems to happen is that every year that they gets further away. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, but uh, I feel as though that the world changed much more. Like, I, I had this written down. I'm going to read this. Your journal, your book of journal entries is uh, interesting because it starts in 1990 when you were 44, which is the year, that's how old I am now. And, uh, and then it ends in 2014, last year. Well, if you were to look back to the age you were, in, uh, the age I was in 1990, which is 19, you'd be looking back in 1965. So it, in 1990, you were 44. 1965 was the equivalent amount of space away. Yeah, I was a sophomore in college. At uh, in, in 19? Yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, good for you. I was a freshman uh, in college, I think. But, um, so... It seems to me that the world changed a lot more from 1965 to 1990 than it did from 1990 uh, to now or to last year. Um, am I, um, again, looking at the world through strange glasses? Have things changed more than I think? And it's only because I haven't taken that science fictional step back from the present that uh, the, the changes don't seem as dramatic? What, what do you feel about the changes? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, it's, you know, highly subjective. Um, right. I think in 1990, we, we barely had email. We barely had the web. It, it really had just started, and it was very hard to do that stuff. Uh, you needed a modem, you know, if you remember them. And uh, they made that funny noise. And uh, and you weren't really browsing the web at all. And uh, so I think the Internet is, is really, I guess that's the big story over the last 25 years. And uh, the terrorism. But um, from 65 to 90, that, that's also quite a jump. It's, it does, to me, it seems like that was maybe longer, but part of this is the way that the human mind works, which is that the, the first half of your life feels maybe five times as long as the second half of your life. You know, there's, it's a sort of psychological phenomenon. Right. Things are new, and you're being surprised, and uh, so... Uh, I mean, the computers weren't there at all in 65, and they didn't, well, they really only started about 86, 87, you know, so there was... Oh, well, that's not true. That's not true. They started in 79. Well, they're starting and starting. I mean, in my life, I didn't own a computer, like a word processor, until, oh, about about 84. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote yeah, my... I, I encountered my first, encounter, my, my first computer... In 1979 So, uh, I don't know. It, it's a tough question. Let's go yeah. to the next one. Okay, sorry. Uh, well, I feel like I cut you off, cut you off there. But um, if you were to think about the last, um, well, your book starts when, when you're 44, your kids are leaving home, 
you've already kind of established. Would you say when your book starts, you, you're well established as a successful cyberpunk author? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was doing that. Was actually almost a, a high point of my career, right around, right around ninety, ninety two. I was getting twenty thousand dollar advances. I was doing well. Yeah, and you were, you were working for Mondo two thousand at that time too, right? Yeah, the Mondo story. Yeah, you had said you were curious about my exact role with Mondo. Uh, yeah, working for them that that wouldn't be accurate. Uh, yeah. I, I I knew them, uh, and they. Actually, I was the person they got the whole idea of cyberpunk from. They, it was a word. They, they'd vaguely heard it, but they didn't know what it was. And as soon as I got out here, I came out here in 86. And then Allison Kennedy and Are You Serious rented a space on San Pablo Avenue in Berkeley. And I went there and I gave a talk on cyberpunk. And they, they totally got off on it. Because before that, Mondo had mainly been about psychedelic drugs. And then they had this idea, wow, uh, this, this computer stuff, this is kind of sort of psychedelic because you're, you're reaching outside of your mind, you know. And they like to talk about hacking, but, you know, none of them knew jack shit about using a computer. I mean, later they hired, you know, some graphic artists who knew a lot about it. But, like, Are You Serious and Allison, they, you know, zilch. So then... Uh, <laughs> I mean, the idea of, you know, hacking would be to take, you know, like ecstasy or something and then imagine that you were doing telepathy with your friends. But <laughs> it wasn't exactly assembly language, you know. Yeah, right. But uh, so I, I kind of turned them on to that. And then they got me to do a few articles for them. Not a large number because it was frustrating to write for them. Allison, it's, it's just hard to overstate how, what a marginal kind of personality she had. I mean, likable, and, you know, I, I enjoy it. She was exciting, but I'd send her an article, she'd lose it, okay. I'd send it again, she'd lose it. Then, you know, they, they were going to publish the issue in a week, and then she'd write me, well, this article, you know, I, it's you have to rewrite it, you know, there's something wrong with it, you know. <laughs> and then I'd rewrite it, I'd send it, she'd lose that, you know. And then, you know, there's they, she'd say I was going to get paid, but she never paid me, you know. So... I wasn't, it wasn't a market where I, I, I was, after a few times like that, I, I liked the glamour of being associated with them. They, they had great parties. They rented this wonderful old house in Berkeley, this enormous old craftsman-style house. And uh, a lot of them lived in there. R.U. lived in there. Allison lived there. Uh, Heidi Foley, I think she was living in there. She was with Bart Nagel, who then started doing the art. And he was, he was really the first person that was using... Uh, graphic tools for a magazine. Everybody else was still doing pace up and he was doing uh doing stuff like uh quark and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. that was awesome. And my daughter Georgia actually went and became their intern. And Allison was very, very, very paranoid about the CIA, you know, as if the CIA would care about them. But uh <laughs> but she liked the idea of hiring my daughter because she knew I was safe. I was a cyberpunk. You know, I think we had smoked pot together. So she figured my daughter wasn't going to be a spy, you know. And so, and that, then Georgia went on and her career ended up being a graphic designer. So it was a really valuable experience for her and she enjoyed it too. Although, again, there was that, the same kinds of issues that I had where they'd finish an issue and then Alice would, Allison would want to throw out the design. But over the years, I must have done five or six articles for them. And then the part where I became really sort of linked with them, they got, uh, the magazine was sort of dying. What happened? Wired showed up, and they were eating Mondo 2000's lunch. That's the second time I've used that expression, eating their lunch. Yeah. And uh, because you couldn't really buy an ad in Mondo, because Allison, she had this alternate personality she put on. She called herself Al Ann Venable when she was being the the advertising exec at Mondo. And then she'd always somehow end up starting an argument with the people who just wanted to buy an ad, you know. So, oh, God. And so Wired, Wired was just, you know, steamrollered them. And, but, you know, at the first, at the very start, there were similarities between them. You know, now Wired has kind of mutated into something a little less radical. But, um, so, 
Let's see. What was yeah. the point I was about? Uh, no, no, no. no. Oh, well, go ahead. Yeah, but um, I, I, I. Oh yeah, the the part. Go ahead. Well, the part where I finally really got linked with Mondo yeah. was they wanted to do a book called uh, the Mondo 2000 User's Guide to the New Edge, and so Allison got quite a good contract for it with Harper Collins in. Uh, I think they were working out of San Francisco then. And uh, then R.U. and her and Bart were going to put it together, and then they realized they, were, they just were unable to do that. That wasn't something in their skill set. They, the idea was to take material. They, by then they had, I don't know, 15 issues, and somebody had to go through the issues and take out articles and cook them down and put you know, cool little you know, full-page, half-page bits out of there. And then they said, well, we need a mathematical logician. Let's go to Rudy, because you know, I have a PhD in mathematical logic. And, and so then I, I knew how Allison acted. I knew she was not going to pay me whatever she promised me to pay me. So I sicked my agent on her and made her pay me in advance, which really pissed her off, you know. But she had, right. <laughs> she had gotten a $50,000 advance, and I wanted whatever. You know, I wanted 10 or 15, you know. Yeah, right. So then I did it, and it was fun doing it, and uh, it was a very cool book, and it, it made the cover of Time magazine, which was just, that was insane. I mean, I, I felt like such a success. I'd brought cyberpunk to the West Coast, and we were on the fucking cover of Time, you know, and cyberpunk in big letters. They had a picture of one of the Mondo people there, Heidi Foley, and uh, they interviewed me a little bit, and uh, I said something like, I don't really like psychedelic drugs. And then my wife's father, you know, he fixated on that. He says, you don't really like them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so what year was it that uh, that, that book made the cover of Time? Um, uh, you could look it up in the journals. I would have to say maybe maybe 92, maybe something okay, like that. Yeah. Because, okay, first, you're talking to someone who probably first encountered your work in that magazine. Huh, cool. Living in Portland, Oregon, you know, uh, going to college uh, off and on for way many, too many years. You know, never, never quite wanting to let go of being a university student and reading uh-huh. Mondo 2000. And, um, uh, it, yeah, you, it, to, it, it's sort of shocking to me to, to realize that you were in your mid-40s at that time. How old were, was... Uh, are you serious, and Allison? How, how old were they? They're my age, also. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you're, like, this was a kind of a carryover from, this, in a way, from the '70s. I mean, the, like a hippie project. Yeah, it was hippie, and then uh, I, I went through sort of a punk phase more than the others. Uh, but uh, I was—I'm the oldest cyberpunk. I'm older than Gibson, and he's older than Sterling, and then. Shirley, I think, is about the same age as Sterling. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but you were defining the counterculture for the for at least the West Coast of the United States in, in the 90s. I mean, you and, for me anyway, you and then Nirvana uh, and Douglas Coupland's book, Generation X, and yeah. uh, Richard Linklater, you're kind of all of a piece in my mind, even though you're completely, it's all completely different projects. Right. Uh, do you see that, that you were involved in sort of shaping the counterculture for a generation? Uh, I, well, that's nice to hear you say that. That's, I don't generally think of that uh, as being the case, but yeah, I, I, cyberpunk really did catch on. The word, people really dug it. It's, the reason it was such a powerful word is that it's a, a synthesis. You know, it takes cyber, Everybody, you know, can see that computers are taking over. People are being like machines. Machines are being like people. And then there's this redeeming thing that up until then, computers had always been boring. So things that are run by dweebs, some like yelling face on a giant screen on a wall, like in those crappy Hollywood movies. And our Star Wars, with everybody wearing these dumbass pajamas, you know, and English accents. And then, but we said, let's put punk on it. And let's have sex and drugs and, and rock and roll and let's be countercultural and let's have it be funky and, and street. And then people really got off on that because then they said, well, this 
we're, we're about to have our souls stolen by the machine, but cyberpunk, if we, if we come at it that way, then we're, that's salvation. When I, was, when I started writing, one of the things I wanted to do, I think, uh, and I'm maybe expressing it for the first time now, is have that kind of impact where you get to at least partially define them a moment. I mean, Mondo 2000 didn't define the generation the way Schlocker did or the way uh, right. Generation X did, but it, but, it, but it did define something, and it was sort of, uh, yeah, it was on the edge of all of that, it seemed to me. Um, did you have that ambition? Oh, very much so. Where I was coming from, when I was in high school and in college, it was the Beats, the Beatniks. It was Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs. And they were totally my heroes. And I dug that they, they knew each other, they hung out, and they, they changed the country. They changed people's way of seeing reality. And I always thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be like those guys. I want to, I want to have this thing. And I, just, I still can't believe that it worked out. It was uh, really... I once asked Ginsburg, how did you guys get so much ink? And he just says, fine writing. So... Uh, I was, you know, I, I wrote as hard as I could, and then Sterling, he really got the ball rolling, you know, and he, he latched onto my work, which, you know, appealed to him. And then, of course, Gibson, you know, was just this super bestseller. I've even worked out this analogy where, where Gibson was sort of like Kerouac. He was the writer who had huge, you know, huge sales, and then Ginsburg, Sterling was more like Ginsburg in that he had this polemical side. And then Shirley was more like Gregory Corso, this, you know, completely whacked out, you know, enchanted person. And then my role would be Burroughs, because I was the the professorial one, the oldest, uh, the dry wit. That's me. Yeah. You gave yourself the coolest one to be. <laughs> <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> it's like saying, we like the Beatles, and I was John. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gibson, Kerouac's very cool. Gibson is very cool. It's hard to be cooler than Bill. I don't know. I, I, I think, well, I'm not saying Gibson is overrated at all, but I think Kerouac's a little overrated. But, um, but that's just my opinion. Uh, so, okay, now I want to ask you about Dave's Confused. This kind of uh, fits in. In, a, in one of your journal entries, you talk about very briefly having been to see Dave the Confused in, in 1993 and how people of your generation would probably really dislike that movie that Dave's been confused and that your wife uh, disliked it. Yeah, she you said know. she <laughs> said Linklater should be shot. <laughs> now, what was it about that movie that uh, you disliked or that your generation disliked? You, you didn't actually say you disliked it, just that your wife did. But oh, no, I, I liked it a lot. I, I, I liked it a lot. Well, it's... <laughs> Well, the people of my generation, well, the music, you know, it wasn't music that we were listening to a lot, you know, and, uh, but I liked, you know, the, the teenagers getting drunk and stoned. I mean, what's not to like about that, you know? Right. And, uh, and I had, I had some sort of evenings a little bit like that in high school, though we never had that much fun. You know, we, we would just, we didn't even have pot in high school, you know, but just yeah. driving around and looking for parties and, and beer but yeah, that was a very cool movie. But it was uh, it was the new generation, and it was interesting to see. Uh, it, I, I rewatched it not so long ago, and I, I found it it really holds up. Uh, movies like that don't always hold up, but I watched it about a year ago, and I really liked it. Yeah, I think it's a, a great movie, and I like Link Ladder in general. Um, I, I, I'm overstating it. I think it's a very good movie. I think Soccer is a really, really good movie too, and and will hold up for a long time. Um, Boyhood but, uh, also. I, I I really I worship that latest movie, Boyhood. I haven't seen that one yet. I need to watch that. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, um, but so okay. Now a question formed in my head while we we're discussing the way that you shaped and that uh, the beat shaped um, the counterculture. It seems to me that what the model has been, is, in a way, is to change the way youth see the world, um, uh, and that also that what's happened to you, and tell me if I'm wrong here, is that you've moved from being 
are the kind of writer who aims at, you know, people in their 20s, in the teens, to being a more mature writer. That's the, maybe the difference between cyberpunks and, and transrealism is the difference between uh, in the level of maturity, at least partly. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm 69, so I'm. You want to get the, you know, the late work, the the late style, and uh, I've gotten. Well, I had this turning point when I was 50. Uh, before that, I was drinking and smoking pot, and then I stopped when I was 50, and that's maybe changed my personality. Or to do that, I had to change my personality a little bit and be a little bit less uh, enamored of shocking people. Though I do like shocking people anyway. I mean, like, look at this this thing with the UFO fucking the boy. But uh, the, uh, and maybe, uh, I'm still, you know, bitter and against against the, the establishment. But uh, there's something, I, I feel like I've gotten better at, depicting people in an empathetic way uh so and the cyberpunk thing you can't just keep writing that i went back to it in my novel post singular and that was uh i thought of that as a strong cyberpunk novel um it was didn't really quite get recognized as that but uh it it did pretty well that's one thing i've done with some of my books um just because I wanted to be read, I, I put post singular, and for that matter, the Ware tetralogy, they're online as free Creative Commons books, and uh, it seems that doesn't really cut down your sales as much as you might imagine that it would. Uh, that's Cory Doctorow's the great apostle of doing that, and uh, I, it seems to have worked pretty well. So. Uh, so I like the cyberpunk thing, and and you know, there's always you know I still have that basic bad attitude, you know, that sneering contempt for everything that we hold sacred. Uh, that's never going to go away. But uh, I like to sort of tie it to my actual real life. Though there with transrealism, what happens? Uh, Updike sort of had this problem too. I mean, once you've written about a certain time period in your life. Uh, <coughs> You don't really want to do it again, maybe, maybe twice, but you know you can't just do it over and over. I mean, that's, I mean, some authors will do that. I mean, yeah, you you don't want to endlessly write about your relationship with your father, you know, like novel after novel after novel, or or your mother. And, uh, but I've sort of burned through most of my life in terms of uh, trans-realizing it. So now I'm actually closer to a traditional novelist in a realist novel in that I will model my characters and scenes on things that I have encountered, but I won't necessarily specifically have it be at a certain stage of my life. Uh, like Mathematicians in Love, it, uh, it might be hard to point to a specific character and say, that's Rudy. Uh, I mean, there's aspects of me in both of the, the protagonists, but uh, it's not like in an earlier book of mine, like all the visions, you know, where uh, it's it's sort of, you know, a bildungsroman about me growing up in Louisville, Kentucky. Or no, that was Secret of Life, sorry. Yeah, you've written a lot of books, so it's easy to, even you sometimes get the names in there. Well, you know, I had a the, the question I was leading to with the the question about whether or not you feel you've matured, and I, it's obviously you have, and even you've even left transrealism behind to an extent. It sounds like, um, but the question was that, I, that came to me here was, you know, is it possible to be the kind of novelist, specifically novelist, because that's what you and I do, that can change the way people see reality, but not just do it generationally. In other words, I think that when you're aiming at a, the youth counterculture, uh, changing the, the, the world, they see the world, it's almost, it's almost like it's a niche market of its own. Yes. That um, you, you're not going to have the, as profound of an effect on the world as somebody who could come along and just 
dominate every market, you know? <laughs> get, get the people in their 50s to, to be uh, wild and, and to rethink their position in the world because of, uh, of a book. Is, is that possible? Am I just like is this just a power fantasy I'm having here? It sounds like it. But what do you what do you think about that aim? Well, it is sort of a power fantasy, and it's better for me not to nurture that too much. It's the thing, like if you step up, baseball analogy. If you step up and you plan to hit a home run, you're going to swing too hard and you're going to strike out. So, right. the I would say I thought David Eggers' book not so long ago, The Circle, that seemed to me like a book that could uh, have a big effect on society. Though I don't know if it really caught on. It was, In a way, it was sort of making fun of Google. And I was at Google a month or two after that, giving a talk about something. And uh, then I said, have any of you read The Circle? You know, and, and like nobody, nobody would read it. You know? they, they, didn't, they didn't want to read it, you know? <laughs> I should pick that up. I guess, you know, the other side of that question about can, uh, could have such a novel come along? I mean, I, I think of the only novel I think that, that I can remember is, uh, that kind of hit on that level and maybe had that kind of impact, but not as completely, would be Portnoy's Complaint, maybe, that came along and uh, was on everyone's table and was sort of defining the moment. Yeah, that was for, that was huge. For the population. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I still I still laugh right now, when when I think about that book. He had such such funny things in there. Yeah, it's a great book. But um, it, it now everything there's just, just there isn't in a book that all adults are reading. You know. It's, well, it's I mean, it's, I'd be happy it's for, for, for I'd be happy with ten thousand adults. You know. Oh, yeah, me too. Well, the other thing it's talking about writers' fantasies is the one where the sort of afterlife fantasy where when you die, you know, suddenly you're going to be like Raymond Chandler. They're going to excavate, you know, you're, you're just stunning, you know, strangely neglected masterpieces. And uh, But I've sort of let go of that one too because, well, mainly it's finally sank in that I'm really not going to be there. To, to enjoy that if it happens. So it's, <laughs> right. it's sort of like, you know, somebody who's like very strictly religious and they say, well, I'm going to like flagellate myself every day so I can get into heaven. And then, you know, you die and whoops, there's no heaven. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's the same thing with uh, posthumous fame. Yeah, it's, it's better to let go of these things if you can. Why do I still write? Yeah, yeah. Based, yeah. well, I write because I enjoy it. It's a craft that I've gotten good at. Uh, over, I've been doing it for. Well, I started when I was about thirty, so I've been doing it nearly forty years. And it's something. I'm like a weaver or a painter or a sculptor. I've gotten very skilled at doing this, and it's pleasing to me to exercise the skill. It's something. I'm. It's what I do in my time. I don't, you know. I don't have that much to do. I, I'm not raising children anymore. I, I don't have a job, and uh, but I enjoy doing this. It, it satisfies me, and uh, I know that I, I bring pleasure to a few. You know, there's a few aficionados that are going to appreciate it, and even in the background, there is this sneaking feeling that I like to leave this this monument. You know, and uh, it'll be there. And I get email. Oh. Not every day, but certainly once or twice a week from somebody just who knows where, you know, anywhere in America or even somewhere else in Australia. And they'll they'll just email me, well, I read such and such a book and I just loved it and uh, I'm going to read a lot of your work. And it's you opened my eyes to looking at things in a new way. And then uh, 
So it's, you know, saving the world one person at a time. Yeah. Any advice to me as someone who's pretty much standing exactly in the spot you were in terms of, you know, age anyway? And then I'm not quite, I mean, I'm nowhere near as, as successful as a writer, I don't think, than, as, than you were at that point. But uh, any, any uh, advice as I go forward in the next 25 years? Well, I think it's it's important in your novels to think about what people like. Uh, I found I used to resist doing this, but I try to always have a love story. It's just people want to have a love story. You know, they're they're together, they break up, they get back together, and your characters. You should have several characters, and they should have interior lives and uh, be empathetic and uh, don't be afraid to try the crazy shit. I'm still always telling myself how to write. Just the other day I realized this routine I was telling you about the saucer laying the eggs on the ceiling of the car, I'd been thinking, oh, I'll do that halfway through the book, you know, I'll save it. And then I realized then I didn't know what to put in the next chapter, I didn't know what to put on the next page, and I realized you can't save up you know, save up the goodies. You say, no, no, you can't see the fireworks yet. It's just keep on setting them off all the way through the book. And because, uh, yeah, you, I'll get anxious that if I, I, I set off this great Roman candle that I have, then I won't have anything left. But if, uh, if I just give, uh, you know, something more will come to me. And I, I'm a strong believer in the muse. It's, uh, it's a shorthand way of, of saying something, which is that a lot of my ideas they don't come from a logical process. They're inspiration. And there's actually, if you get into the, the computer science and the mathematics, you can actually prove that it is, in fact, impossible to predict what you're going to do in a novel. There's, there's just no way to get it by logic. And the only way it's going to come is by the, the churning of your mind day after day is going to then pop this thing up and it'll feel like it came from the muse. And then and maybe there is, you know, at some deeper level, we have a, a quantum entanglement with the world and uh, the cosmos is... When I'm really rocking on a book, uh, I'll get this feeling like the world is dancing with me. I'll see... I'll be thinking about a certain kind of character and then I'll go outside, you know, to the main street and I'll see, you know, the template for that character and they'll be saying something and it's just perfect what they're saying and I'll, I'll jot it down. I often have a scrap of paper in my pocket I can jot things down. And that's that's another reason I like writing. It's not just the craft, you know, I'm not like just some sweatshop worker. It's it's joyful. It gets me high. You know, it raises my consciousness. So uh you know, just keep keep thinking about your readers and, and get high off your writing. That's the best advice I can give. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um uh wow, okay. <laughs> 